to the Renaissance episode 55, Ray. Yeah, I don't want to scare anybody, but it is hour three, so lower your standards and hold on to something tight. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, my throat is feeling it too. It's feeling it. Mm. I'm sore. My throat is sore. Yeah. It's tired. You need a cigar. Um, so, hey. I do need a cigar and I don't have any cigars because nobody loves me enough to send me cigars. You told me several weeks ago right. you were sending me cigars. Yeah. Uh, they're still not in the mail. Victor Santoki loves me. He has apparently sent me some cigars, but they're not here yet. But uh, yeah, no one sends me cigars. Don't know what happened to Tim. Timbo. Timbo. I think the last cigars I had. We're either from Timbo or maybe uh, Jason, somebody, anyway. So in our last episode, we were talking about uh, Poggio having young wenches 69ing in front of, in front of him when he was <laughs> copying out these great classic manuscripts. Because you got to do whatever you got to do to get through the day, right? To get the work done. Yeah. That's all that matters. If you need, it's all that I know matters. Heather's. I know Heather has said this to you on a number of occasions. Listen, if you need young eighteen-year-old wenches sixty-nineing in front right. of you to get the work done, do what it takes. Don't, don't yeah. stop. Don't hold back. You get right. it done, son. That's what she said. I'm not going to ask her. I'm just going to assume she's thinking that and go ahead and hire some. So. I don't know how to write up a receipt for that, but I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. And if she complains, you go, hey, so it's good enough for Poggio. It's good enough for me. <laughs> she go, who the fuck is Poggio? And go, fuck. Why don't am I married to you again? Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, back to 1417. Now, Poggio made a number of book hunting trips that winter. Mm-hmm. So, as we talked about in the last episode, he must have been getting a lot of funding from back home. People must have been funding these trips, even though uh, later on he makes a bit of money. Poggio, at this stage, probably not wealthy, very expensive to do this work. In fact, he had a letter around about this time from Leonardo Bruni that I saw in the collection of uh, Poggio's letters, where Bruni wrote to him saying, keep going, don't worry about the cost, I'll cover them all, just find more books. Damn. So there you go. Nice. He pulled a Tony. Now, on this trip, he he had with him a companion, mm-hmm. another apostolic secretary from Constance, Bartolomeo di Aragazzi. <laughs> Bartolomeo <laughs> di Aragazzi. <laughs> they were close friends. But also rivals, great fame and glory was to be had for whomever found lost treasures. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and I think we'd said previously that, yeah, if you find a book, you you make a copy, you send it back to Florence, it gets spread out, and, and maybe you don't ever see that book again. But the way they had their system worked out is it was clear about who was the original rediscoverer. So, yes, you do get the credit for that. You do get the fame, uh, the glory, or whatever else that comes with it. So it is important to these guys. They can be friends, but they're in the same business along with a couple of other humanists. They want to get there first. They want their name attached to whatever amazing literary treasure comes next. I can't believe that I just I just pushed out there a little bit of fucking opera, three tenors, and uh, I, you didn't say shit. You I didn't say you didn't congratulate you. me. Nothing. You just just left it hanging out there like a big Which I'll have to edit in. But I was impressed. Mm. I was impressed mm-hmm. as fuck. Okay. <laughs> too, uh, feelings too hurt. late now. Fucking too late now, so right? My feelings that, are hurt. get this man a cigar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so uh, they went their separate ways, these guys, each hoping to find a great treasure. Now, Poggio headed north. Bartolomeo headed to a monastery of hermits deep in the Alps. Uh, Not a monastery of Kermits, 
which uh, sure. which is where the Kermits went sure. to hide from Miss Piggy. They went to <laughs> they had to go to a monastery <laughs> to get away from uh, her karate chops. Um, he heard that this. Mo- <laughs> Welcome back Hi-ya! to the It's the Muppet Show. <laughs> Welcome, <laughs> Kermit the Frog here. Hour three. <laughs> now we're three. We've got opera. We've got Kermit impressions. Miss Piggy impressions. Until they got to go up. From we're here. already five minutes it. in. I can feel it. It's this uh, warm drink of honey and lemon that I made to ease Good my throat, which is doing it. <laughs> Get me high, high on the lemon juice. Um, so yes, he Bartolomeo went to this monastery in the Alps. He'd heard they had a trove of ancient books. Unfortunately mm. for him, he fell ill and had to return to Constance to recover. Now, Poggio had with him a, a scribe, a German that he had been ah. training in the ways of the Poggio. Um, and he was so he's got a, a traveling companion. Also, I think it's important to have a traveling companion. So if you get attacked by <laughs> bandits on the road you give the scribe the 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 donkey Uh. and you're riding the the horse (laughs) so you get away let them fall on him and kill him uh is the way it works that's that's his job it's a bit like um in i claudius that i was watching when uh last last night the first episode where uh the claudius's uh guy brings him his meal and, right. then, and then he's the poison taster. He's uh, eating all of the food. Claudius keeps handing him yeah. <laughs> bowls. Try some of this. No, no, eat that more, bit. That more. bit there. Try that yeah. bit. And drink this. And he drinks some wine. He goes, take, <laughs> take a big mouthful. Yeah, get it in there. Really have a good <laughs> Being the poison tester, man. Fuck. What a job. If there's anybody who should have been yeah. a Stoic or an Epicurean, it should have been one of those poison tasters. Just live every day like it's your last. Don't worry about death because it might be right around the corner. Just live life. Live life. Yeah. 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 I wonder if they had like a, a union. <laughs> you think poison tasters? They always had to get new members. Had a, had a union. They had to get new members all the time. Did, but, they, uh, <laughs> did they have like good health care coverage? No. Like what? What about I don't, if you die? What, what happens to your wife and children? Right. What? Someone else from the guild has to marry her and take care of your kids. And is it? Well, did they have a guild? Was it a profession that was passed on from father to son? <laughs> poison. Mm, your food taster. There's a flaw in that plan, isn't there? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you had to teach your children how to teach the children well but how to eat poison and not to die something like that but according to the tibbo shows that we just did i would think a guild wouldn't work out very well because i don't think they were paid very much so here's a dangerous guild you might die and here's minimum wage i just don't see that making a good guild I really don't. Mm, not people weren't beating down the doors <laughs> to get into the poison guild. Not in, no. Anywho, um, yeah. So Poggio's got a German scribe now. As I said, I think in the last episode, Poggio apparently didn't like monks very right. much. He thought of them mostly as lazy, stupid, superstitious morons. A bit like how I think of you. Um, <laughs> You didn't he, have to he, go he there. He had that same sort of... Yeah, you just chose to. That's fine. That's fine. I don't have feelings. That's fine. I'm Come not on. People would have been disappointed if I hadn't <laughs> taken that shot. You know, it's okay to disappoint the people every uh, once in a while. But that's fine. Hmm. Let's move on. <laughs> You're a bit like a monk. You just sit there all day. Bald. <laughs> okay. Dirty. Right. Smoking cigars. Reading things That's you a fuck you. Reading things you don't understand. Right. right. Yeah. Don't. Don't. You see. You didn't have to go there. No. I. You didn't I have wanted to. to. I really wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's. You have the ultimate comeback now. No. <laughs> yeah. I may be stupid and lazy, but I've got cigars, motherfucker. Wow. Yeah. Well, good point. Fair enough. 
The only upside of living in America <laughs> right, right now is oh, you can still get cigars. Good point. Now I'm sad. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Poggio thought of monasteries as the dumping grounds for basically the world's scum. <laughs> right. They, as we said, I think, in the last episode, these were often the illegitimate sons or the weakling sons of noblemen, misfits, good-for-nothings, right. dim-witted, paralytic... Retarded, one-legged, uh, <laughs> one shit kickers yes. <laughs> of the world. Right, right. And t- it- today, yeah. If you have a if you have a son like that, mm-hmm. you just put them into podcasting. But back then, <laughs> you would send them to a monastery. Here's a microphone. Here's a computer. Go for it. Yeah, I don't care. Just talk about something. Here's a Wikipedia page. That's all you need. Just read that. <laughs> hey. Did you see on uh Yeah. Did you see on Facebook the other day I posted that you're my Jesse Pinkman? Yes, I saw that. And I took it the most positive I was way watching, I could. I was watching Breaking Bad and I was just watching it the way that Walt treats Jesse, and I was like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I get it now. Ray is my Jesse Pinkman. And then I said it to Chrissy when I got home from the gym, and she said, you realize that Jesse survives. He's the moral center of the show. He survives, and Walt dies. Yeah. Um, You know, rich, but uh, hated by everyone, (laughs) hated by his own family, hated by society, um, and dies alone. On the floor of a laboratory, and I was like, "Yeah, sounds, sounds good. A, sounds good to it's me." Like I'm looking um, into a mirror. Sounds, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sign me up. You had your moment in the sun, and now you're no more. Don't worry. I don't about like it. people. That's why I'm a podcaster. That's why I sit here talking to a microphone because I don't like people. Don't have to deal with people. Only you. Good for you. And you can't. I can. No, I can be mean I'm, to I'm you, sorry. and you can't shoot me because. I'm sorry. <laughs> Guns don't shoot that far. Right. Lord knows I've tried. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The only thing that Poggio thought monks were any good at was singing. Oh, that's nice. That's something. Right? Mm. He did write in one of his letters, what would they say if they rose to go to the plough like farmers exposed to the wind and rain with bare feet and with their bodies thinly clad? Oh, is that... So he thought they were is that, lazy good for right, is that them? Is that him when they complain about their lives saying, you know, hey, it could be a lot worse. You could be a poor farmer. We have to get out there every day and bust dress and in the cold weather or the hot sun. You know, you got it pretty good in here. You know, you're safe from the world. Yeah, you can get beat if you don't read and write when you're supposed to, but generally you've got it a lot better than a lot of those people, so shut the fuck up and quit jerking each other off in, you know, at nighttime. You don't even do real work, says the man who spent his life basically writing books. Uh, but of course... what I'm sorry, I was just going to say, I, I guess it's probably his exposure to monks, to the, let's be honest, the corruption at the, of the church at, the, at its highest levels that probably kept him, I guess, from becoming a priest or becoming a monk, or maybe he just never had that belief. As a humanist, he was thinking, you know, this stuff, there's a good chance all this stuff is not real, or I'm certainly not going to dedicate my life to it, who knows. But I, I imagine just being around these monks certainly would have sealed the deal to make sure that he would never, you know, yeah. make the church's life. He did. He did make the church's life. What the fuck are you talking about? Layman, he worked for the Pope. As a layman. He didn't have to go through all the things. That it doesn't matter. Doesn't it? He worked for the Pope. The church was his life. He spent all day mm. sitting in the Vatican writing the Pope's letters. No, he, he would copy manuscripts with two women going down on each other. That's not exactly the life of a, pop, of a monk. I'm sorry. But I see well, your point. That's what he did in his spare time. <laughs> that's what he did. <laughs> After hours. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Paggio, after yeah. hours. <laughs> Put some of my porn music on that I play. The beginning of our uh, QAV podcast, the investment podcast, right. I've got this porn music that opens it up. I always I always open it up. It plays and I'm like, QAV, call us now. You T- sh- Tony, Tony yeah. always has a laugh. God. You should get, uh, what's her name? Is it Jessica? Uh, 
Is it Jessica from Texas? Jessica. To, to record Jessica. you an opening. Yeah. Push one for this. Yeah. Push two. No, she's ma- she's ma- she's she's married. Oh, now. she can't do she that. Can do that. No, she of. can't. Saucy, saucy I, voice. I apologize. Mm. Um, now, of course, when he went to a monastery, Poggio wouldn't let them know what he really thought about yeah. them. He, uh, it's like how you never say what you really think about me <laughs> on the show. You always just tell me what I want to hear, and he did the same. Yeah, nice guy. Skilled in the diplomatic arts, ah, like a that's true. Virginian from Charlotte. Yeah, no, Charlottesville, no, Chatt- Chattanooga. No, no, no. Charlotte's. No, where, just, where are you from originally? Oh, Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston, the other fucking city. <laughs> one. I can, well, you can never remember. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Now, I want to talk about the fact that the the founders of these early monastic orders didn't think of copying manuscripts as some sort of esteemed activity. Right. It wasn't it wasn't uh something that was looked up to as uh holy work or admirable work. It was shit kicker work. <laughs> For the for the monks, for the scribes and monasteries, right? They knew that in old Rome it had been done by slaves. Oh, good point. So it was it the work was tedious. It was humiliating. They were treated like shit. It's yeah. a bit like being a podcaster. <laughs> it, it was excellent, excellent work for humbling the spirit in the monasteries. Right, we're breaking the spirit. Yeah, so they have to learn to make parchment. They have yes. to learn to salvage current parchment. I mean, yeah, this is going to break their spirits. But here's the part that I like, and, and I won't go too far because I don't want to mess you up, but this is the work of former slaves. They can never leave the monastery. If they if they flinch in the wrong direction, they're going to get beat. They don't even take solace for maybe some of the great ideas that they're copying. To them, it's just drudgery. They view it that way. They don't let this information sink in. And because it's Christian, Christianity, because their bosses, their superiors are Christians, they're not going to do what the pagans did in times past. They're not going to let these books, these writings become that important to them. They'll copy it because they understand that, you know, it's it's good to have these books around and we'll copy it and maybe we'll sacrifice some and, like you were saying, scrape it off and write our own stuff. But the point is, they're going to keep it in its place. And so for these people at the very bottom of the totem pole, their life just absolutely sucks. There's no debate. There's no grammar lessons. There's no knowledge. Just for the sake of knowledge, there's faith, fear, and guilt, and nothing else exists for these people. It's like being a Catholic. <laughs> faith, Pretty much. fear, and guilt. Pretty much, baby. Pretty much. And like I told you in Vegas, just keep it in its place. <laughs> no, don't. Stop pulling it out at the bar in particular. No one... Not only does no one want to see it, no one can see it without a magnifying glass. So just uh, but keep it's it in mine, there. and I'm proud of it. Yeah, this penis is mine, and I am proud of it. Other people have penises, but not this one. Exactly. <laughs> um, now, even in the monasteries, though, uh, over time, the good scribes, mm-hmm. the ones that could write neat and accurately came to have a value. And we know that because in the early German codes of law, they had this thing called the Veregilt, W-E-R-E-G-I-L-D, Veregilt. It was a payment that you had to make as punishment if you killed someone. Oh. Now... I know that you're familiar with this. You've had to pay this several times uh, when right. boys have come around uh, asking for your eldest daughter, Kiki. I right. know you've had to kill them. Right. And then you just go to their family and you say, listen, uh, I, I killed your yeah. son. Uh, how, mu- how much? How much? What, 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 what was he worth? Yeah. yeah. What was here's, he worth? Here's, tw- here's $12. Um, Vera. V- no. <laughs> Australian money, so about eight US, really. Um, Vera, W E R E means man, guilt, payment, or value, All right. or price. 
Uh, I, I think it's like a, something that's gilded. Mm. If you gild something, you're putting something of value on it, maybe. Right. Vera is the same as in werewolf. Werewolf. Oh, God. Were means man. Mm-hmm. So werewolf means man wolf. Good gracious. So that's uh, sexy. Yeah. Um, now, under, under the Vera guilt in uh, these German codes of law, Killing a scribe ranked equal to killing a bishop or an abbot in terms of the penalty that you had to pay. Because if you th- if you think about it, um, it was it was difficult and expensive to find someone who could copy books, right? Uh, particularly doing it well. Yeah. To do it well, it was it was difficult. It was expensive to train people how to make a parchment and copy books and all this kind of stuff. So they, they had value. And they needed books to enforce the reading rules that we talked about, I think, in the last episode. Right. So, um, you know, the, these people, even though it was shit kicker work, the people that were good at it had value. They were probably still treated like shit. Yeah. But um, they, they were aware of the value. Now, of course, Poggio didn't see that. He saw this as, as the highest of callings, yeah. finding these documents and copying them out. But that's how it was perceived inside of monasteries. Now, these libraries in the monasteries were tiny compared to the ancient libraries of Rome and Alexandria and Baghdad. But eventually, they developed a special room called the Scriptoria. The plural is scriptoriums, mm-hmm. where monks would sit in absolute silence for long hours, I think like six hours a day, doing painstaking work, uh, no heating, no air conditioning, copying out these books. And, of course, most books in the ancient world, go back to Rome, took the form of scrolls, Mm -hmm. like uh, the Jews today still use scrolls. And if you watch I, Claudius... You can see them using scrolls in that. But in the 4th century, Christians started working with the Codex, which is more like a a modern book with pages. The pages were made out of parchment. And if you watch the video that I put up on our Renaissance uh, Facebook page Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago by the time the show comes out, uh, you can see them actually making a Codex out of these oh, parchments cool. and how they did it and how they sewed it all together and the whole deal. But the, the, do you know why they preferred the codex over the scroll, Ray? Was it easier to access a, a specific point in the book? You don't have to scroll through the whole thing? Yeah, and easier to hit people with as well um, <laughs> and kill people with. Anyone who has seen John Wick 3... Uh, we'll know that. Uh, the first, first, I think the first death in John Wick 3, he kills a guy in a library with a book. Oh, my God. Um, it's quite, oh quite a good death. He gets, the, he gets the guy down. The guy's like three feet taller than him. He's a giant. He gets him down eventually, puts the guy's head on the shelf of the library, one of the bookshelves in the library, has this big, thick book, like it's a hardcover book, probably a couple of inches thick, slams it, punches it into the guy's mouth and keeps slamming his fist onto it until he basically breaks the guy's jaw wide open and then I think he stabs him in the eye um, to kill him. Jesus. But, yeah. Yeah, well, hey, that's what John Wick is all about. By the way, (laughs) plug, if you haven't seen the John Wick movies, see the John James Caffin, we're having dinner at James Caffin's house week or so ago, and he hadn't seen the John Wick films. I was like, dude, you got to check him out. And he did. He watched the first two online, and then he went and went to the cinema and saw John Wick. Oh, God. They're so great. I mean, they're just... Have you seen any John Wick films? No, I, I haven't... No. I don't normally oh, do... fantastic, I man. I don't normally do... It's, it sounds to me like senseless violence. Senseless sex, yes. Yeah. But senseless violence is not my thing. Ah. Uh. Oh, okay. Well, you're missing out. It's just pure senseless violence. <laughs> They're just 90 minutes of, of senseless violence, but it's beautifully choreographed senseless violence. Uh, like it's uh, okay. 
a lot of detail. The guy who directs them was Keanu's stunt double for 15 years. He was his stunt double on the Matrix Matrix films, Mm -hmm. and Keanu pegged him to direct these films. So they're just all out stunt work, just 90 minutes of uh, full-on stunt and over-the-top, over-the-top violence. If you talk just the violent scenes from a good modern James Bond film... right? like a Daniel Craig one, and you just made it 90 minutes of just straight-out <laughs> killing. God. But with Keanu in it, Keanu just being a complete, calm, serene, Zen Buddhist, murdering badass, <laughs> that's what these films are. Is and it? they're funny, too. Like, okay. they don't take it seriously. Like, there's a, there's a, a tongue-in-cheek quality to the whole thing like you're supposed to go fuck off (laughs) it's just it's ridiculous ridiculous but so it's funny there's a lot of laughs in it a lot of laugh beats but also a lot of oh no oh what he just did what oh no fuck off that's brutal with a book a lot of lot of oh my god violence porn yeah anyway (laughs) back to uh back to uh poggio yeah, yeah, so books, right. you can kill people with them, but also you, they're easier to bookmark, e- easier to paginate, easier to index. And uh, so another thing we have to thank the Christians for, introducing the concept of the Codex. Uh, thank wide, you, Making it widespread. Don't think they invented it. No sarcasm. Widespread. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I want to talk about papyrus versus parchment. I think we might have done this in an early episode, but that was years ago, so I want to do it again just to remind people. Do you have anything on papyrus versus parchment in your notes? Um, yeah, well, I have. Mm, all I have is about the, uh, the animal hides, about how they would smooth them out, and the monks would have to learn that, would do that with the pumice stone, rub away all the animal hair, but I don't have anything on the uh, papyrus. Well, I'll start with that and then we can get into the parchment and you can talk about that. So for thousands of years, ancient texts had been written on papyrus, which was made from the, the pith, the, the central tissue of the papyrus plant, which, as I said earlier, last episode or this episode, I can't remember, came from Egypt, tended to grow along the Nile mm-hmm. in Egypt. And after the fall of the Roman Empire, it became increasingly expensive and difficult to get your hands on papyrus. Trade with papyrus makers of Egypt disappeared uh, not long after the fall of the empire. And paper didn't come into general use until the 14th century. I think from memory, wasn't it Marco Polo who brought paper back from China? Right. So for more than a thousand years... The chief writing material used for books was made from the Mm -hmm. skins of animals. Cows, sheep, goats, sometimes deer. Parchment and vellum, though, started being used in the first century BCE. But at the time, it was expensive to produce, more expensive than papyrus. So papyrus was more common. But after the fall of the empire... Papyrus became the expensive option. Parchment was cheaper because mm-hmm. you could make your own parchment. As, as labour-intensive as parchment making was, you could do it in the middle of Europe because you had cows and sheep and goats that you were going to kill anyway. You could skin them and use the skin. You couldn't grow papyrus plants. So uh, let's talk about how you would make Parchment. You've got some notes on that, I believe. Yeah, I have. What they would take the animal hides of the various animals that you were saying, and they would um, have to make them smooth. And so they would have these monks at this at this one point who had to do it on their own, and they would take pumice stones and they would just rub and rub and rub on the on the um, the hides, trying to make them smooth, trying to get rid of all the hair, any kind of bumps or imperfections. Because the more bumpy it is when you go to actually use it, it's going to make your job of writing on that even harder. It's going to slow you down. You might get in trouble for it. So you want to rub really hard with a pumice stone, pumice stone, and just rub away all the imperfections so when it is written on, it's going to be a lot better. And 
I think we were saying this earlier, and if you did a really good job and you wrote on there with the ink they had, what they used for ink, I mean, this stuff could last for a long time. Yes, there was fire and floods, and there's these little earthworms that eat through, but these things could last for a couple hundred years if they were kept well, and so doing it was a pain in the ass, but if you could do it right, this stuff, these books could last for a while. Hmm, that's what you said to me in Vegas. Doing it is rough, it's a pain in the ass. Uh, now, the finest parchment <laughs> was the one that – the finest parchment was made out of calf skin and it was called vellum. The best of the lot, though, was called uterine vellum. It was made from the skins mm-hmm. of aborted calves. Uh, I'm not hungry anymore. It was very white, smooth, lasted a long time. It's kind of I'm surprising. Sorry, this is nasty. But these skins were reserved for the most precious right. books. And uh, there are still examples of these in libraries in Europe today. The uh, ones made from aborted, car- aborted calf skin. Uh, but monks, as we've said, weren't supposed to enjoy their work, they didn't have hot 18-year-olds going 69 in front of them when they were copying. They was, it was supposed to be painful and tedious. That was the whole point of it. Yes, right. they needed the books for the monastery, but the monks weren't supposed to read or understand what they were copying. It was supposed to be just uh, work for the soul. It was a bit like a Zen monk sitting in meditation pose for hours. The pain is right. almost the point of the whole thing. Curiosity about the text was to be avoided at all costs. Mm -hmm. And here's an important thing. I think I said in an earlier episode that the fact that the monks didn't think about what they were writing was in a way a good thing because monks weren't allowed to fix someone else's mistakes in the original text. You know, they can't be reading and going, oh, I think he... He said uh, Crestus when he should have written Christus or Christus. I think I'm just going to change that. They did do that sometimes, but they weren't supposed to. They weren't supposed to change anything. Now, there's good and bad in this. I mean, on one hand, it means that mistakes got copied over and over and over and over again. But it also means that the monks weren't deliberately making more mistakes. They weren't trying to fix stuff that they knew nothing about. And the temptation would have been there, I think, if they had been trying to understand it, to try and improve on these texts, which would have made it harder for us to know what the original text actually said. So it was probably a good thing that they just copied someone else's mistakes over and over again. It prevented this sort of wholesale corruption of the texts over time. But errors did creep in and were repeated over and over, collecting over time. Now, what did they do if they made a mistake themselves, Ray? Yeah, so uh, besides um, creating the uh, the stuff with the puma stones you know, on the hides, you'd obviously want to preserve parchment as well. So you want to be very careful with the stuff. But yeah, if you make a mistake, a slip of the pen, you've got to, because this stuff is so valuable, you've got to take care of it. So you can scrape away with a razor. You can try to repair a spot with a mixture of milk and cheese and lime, which I'm still tempted to do uh, when we finish recording. That sounds pretty cool. But yeah, so you make a mistake, you fix it one way or the other and then you can go about with your your business because you certainly can't just take a piece of hide and throw it away i imagine that would have gotten you an instant intense beating right away this stuff was not to be wasted yeah you can't just scrunch it up and throw it in the bin uh this was very (laughs) valuable stuff now on top of making their own parchments they would often be given an old parchment and they would have to scratch the ink off of the old parchment, which you can do. I mean, it's laborious, but you can oh, you can do it because right. the parchment is so thick. You would scratch off the old mm-hmm. ink and write over the top of it. Now, oftentimes, the books they were erasing, of course, were ancient 
pagan works from Roman times. Now, initially, in the Christian era, these books were considered heretical, wrong, and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so it, they, it, was, it was a good thing to erase these books, and they kept them for the parchment, not for the content uh, although there were definitely some Christians in some monasteries, including some abbots, who knew the value of these old works and were happy to find the gems in them and ignore the rest. Uh, like they would go, mm. okay, well, this bit of Aristotle we like, this bit of Cicero, we'll keep the whole book just for those bits. But most of the Christians weren't that sophisticated. They were happy happy to erase these old books, particularly as the centuries went on and on. You know, maybe yeah. in the earlier years, like guys like St. Augustine of Hippo writing in the early 400s, he had a classical education and probably understood the value of Aristotle and Cicero and, and referred to them in his own works. But... Few few hundred years later, there nobody's oh, got yeah. nobody's Nothing. got any appreciation for these things outside of the small books. Fortunately, by the time that happened, the Muslims had managed to conquer parts of the Middle East and and Africa and Europe, and they valued the mm-hmm. books. And as I said in an earlier episode, some Irish monasteries did as well. And we'll have to talk. I think we'll have to dedicate some episodes to the Muslims and the Irish who maintain these. Yeah. But in the West, they, they the were happy just to rub it out and copy over the top <laughs> of them. In fact, they they probably thought it was a holy act to erase these pagan words yeah. off these documents. Between the 6th century and the middle of the 8th century, Greek and Latin classics in Europe pretty much stopped being copied at all. It started up again uh, in the Carolingian era. There is this thing that's known as the Carolingian Renaissance where they started mm-hmm. to appreciate these again. And we'll talk a little bit about the Carolingian Renaissance in future episodes. Uh, and I think I did touch on it briefly in some of our introduction episodes. But, uh, but in the West, they stopped being copied at all. And, and the only reason these documents survived at all over that period of time is because they were written on parchment, skin, dried, Ah, cured skin, which is incredibly Mm -hmm. durable. And sometimes these old works survived even after they had been erased. A parchment that's been erased is called a palimpsest. Palimpsest. I think it's from the Greek to scrape again. Um. Now, you might recall Mm. earlier I said that Leonardo Bruni wrote to Poggio that the only book he hoped to read more than Quintilian's oratory was Cicero's De Repubblica. Well, unfortunately, he never lived to read it. Only one copy of it has ever been found. And do you know when wow. it was found, Ray? Um, uh, the fourth century? <laughs> no, do you want to take another random guess of centuries, Ray? Yes, I do. Actually, I do. now, would this be the one? Guess no, no. specific let me, years. Let me try this. Specific years now. Let me. Oh, was I, it I don't know about... I, 357. I just have, yeah, go. Was it 1291? We could we can keep this up all day. <laughs> no, was this... Um, let's see here. Uh, I, have, I have here in my... I'm not sure if it's Wikipedia, so don't hold me to that, but a unique 4th century copy, copy of Cicero's On the Republic remained visible beneath a 7th century copy of St. Augustine's Meditation on the Psalms. Yeah, Am I was, getting warmer? Yes. When was it discovered? I didn't knew. <laughs> it was discovered in 1819 by the librarian at the Vatican. Wow. 
the only surviving copy of one of the greatest works from ancient Rome, De Republica, on the Commonwealth, Cicero's discussion of how the Roman Republic worked and the value of it. Um, and, and it was known of during the Renaissance era, like Poggio and Petrarch and, and Bruni and Niccolo and Cosimo, they knew about the existence of this because it was mentioned in other works as a great, is mentioned right. in many, many, many surviving works as the one of the uh. great masterpieces of government ever written, but they never managed to get a copy of it. It wasn't found until 400 years later. I'm sorry, I just have to interrupt. So with the recordings that we're doing tonight, I have to thank the Christians, I have to thank the Muslims, I have to thank the fucking Irish, I have to thank the, I think I can't remember if I said Muslims, and now I have to thank a cardinal or some member of the Vatican. That's just too goddamn much. I, I like being mad at all these people. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, uh, so he found a copy of it. As you said, it was a 4th century copy of Cicero's De Republica underneath a 7th century copy of St. Augustine's Meditation on the Psalms in the Library of the Vatican. Wow. And I posted a photo of this uh, up to our Facebook page. Um, it, so the, the Cicero had been scraped off in the 7th century and somebody had written St. Augustine, mm-hmm. copied St. Augustine on top of it. But Angelus Mayo, the librarian at the Vatican, copied out the tra- – you could see the traces of the original text. He copied it all out and published the work wow. in 1822. It was one of the first major recoveries of an ancient text from a palimpsest. And these days we've got Mm -hmm. a lot more because these days we have like um, uh, better technology where they can use ultraviolet light and scanning and all that kind of stuff to look at these things and pick up the traces of the ink. But he was the first guy to do it in a major way and it inspired scholars to do it in more old ancient works in palimpsests so uh shout out to that's cool the librarian at the vatican in 1819 librarians are cool no matter where you work well that's all my notes for this show ray i'm done you're done wow oh um well here since we have a couple minutes i wanted to run something by you because you like to um you like to compare different cultures, draw you know um, lines to modern things. So, so let me give me a couple of minutes, uh, and I, I just want to run something by you because I found this, I found this a long time ago. It's it's a good introduction to trying to understand humanism, the beginning of the Renaissance. So I just wanted to run this by you. So we're going to focus on the city of Florence for a second. So during the last couple of decades of the 14th century. The powerful city of Milan, under its dictator Gian Galizano Visconti, was on the verge of conquering an empire in northern Italy. And one of the last places that was holding out was Florence. So the Milanese forces, which were obviously superior to the Florentines, because as we said, the Florentines, they can't fight very well. They could probably cook. They can certainly bang your wife and they can bribe. But fighting is not one of their things. So the city of Florence is under siege. The Milanese victory looks like it's going to happen in any second. This is a very important part in history. All of a sudden, Visconti dies of the bubonic plague right outside of the gates of Florence, and the Milanese forces withdraw. So this is a a near disaster. So the Florentine leaders, the ones we've mentioned, especially the chancellors, um, Salutati and Bruni, Leonardo Bruni, they get together and go, how did we get to this moment? We need to think this thing through. How did we come so close to being defeated? And through their debates and their discussions and writing letters to each other and consulting with other uh, people like-minded like themselves, they decided that Florence's educational system, based on typical medieval vocational ideas, 
wasn't getting the job done. It wasn't producing well-rounded, competent citizens and city leaders who could help withstand these kind of crises. So what they decided to do was they needed a new educational structure to produce citizens who were more capable, who could think on their feet, who were more well-rounded, and they needed to be active citizens. And they, and I don't know if this is you know, exactly boom, 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 linear, but they're going to call it civic humanism. Now, this new system is going to stress the, different, the, the connection between Florence and ancient Rome when it was a republic, not an empire. And this is going to be, this connection is going to be based on reading the classical authors, which we've uh, talked about, you know, in various uh, episodes here. So what they're going to do is they're going to bring back that idea that they think through the readings that the ancient Romans had. And what they're going to do is they're going to prepare every citizen for his political role. Whatever level of politics you're going to participate in, we want you to be the best citizen you can so you can contribute the most. Maybe you're just a voter. Maybe you're going to make it to the senioria. Maybe you're going to be a leader. Maybe you're going to do the job that Paggio had. But we want to prepare you so you can be the best citizen that you can possibly be. And if we do this right, it's going to lead to individual human development. It's going to lead to rational thinking, and it's going to lead to maturity. And we're going to have the best group of citizens that we possibly can. And what we're going to do is we're going to teach people to share their ideas and to learn from each other. We're going to focus on moral philosophy and rhetoric. Um, we're going to help people develop their judgment ability, and we're going to help them develop the ability to, to communicate knowledge and eloquence. And as we know, in order to do this, we have to have as many of the old classical writings as we possibly can, which is a part of what starts these book hunters going out, looking for things, going all over Italy at first, and then obviously France and Germany, and they're going to go to other places. But we need to gather as much as we can so we can incorporate this into our new education, uh, uh, new educational system, develop good, well-rounded human beings, so we can be the best citizens who actually can think, they're intelligent, and they care, and they're passionate about their city-state, and they will fight and defend a lot better than they have before, and we won't ever come to this moment of almost collapse that we just did. And I read that, and I just thought that was so cool. And then, do helping my daughter with her homework, I read about the old Spartans during the time of Alexander, and just before the time of Alexander with Philip, and they had the exact opposite point of view. The Spartan leadership were like this. If people learn to read, they're going to gain knowledge. If they gain knowledge, they're going to ask questions. If they ask questions, they might rebel against us. So what the Spartan leadership would do is like, we're going to, to the best of our ability, make sure only the right people learn how to read or write or communicate in, in that kind of manner. Everyone else is to focus on being the best soldier you could possibly be. In fact, we're going to go to other tribes, other city-states. We're going to war on them. We're going to take their people. We're going to bring them over here, and they're going to be our slaves, and they're going to do all of the work, everything around here. So our people, us, the Spartans, can focus on just being better warriors. And nothing else. And I just found that fascinating that the Spartans saw knowledge as the problem, the beginnings of problems for them, whereas the Florentines, the humanists, said knowledge is the only thing that can keep us from being overrun by Milan, by the Papal States, by the whoever. They saw education as their salvation. And I just thought the two contrasts of that was very fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Great insights. I mean, it, it reminds me, the, the Spartan view reminds me of Christianity in in many ways. Like, we don't want people to read mm -hmm. and think. In fact, we want to demonize reading and thinking. I'm talking about, you know, in the early stages in the 4th, 5th, 6th century. Right. Um, we want, all we want people to do is to have faith. Just have faith. That is, yeah. Yeah, okay, you can read a little bit of the Bible. That's okay. All the writings of the, the early church fathers. But outside of that, reading and thinking, not necessary. Mm -hmm. Don't don't worry about it. You don't need that. In fact, it's just going to lead you astray. Not good. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. It's and in get fact, you in trouble. that goes back in, in 
in a way, to Genesis, right? The Old Testament. Adam and Eve got kicked out of Eden for eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Right. God didn't want right. them to have knowledge. Just stay dumb and innocent. Uh, that's all you need. Don't think yeah. about stuff. If you think about be, stuff, be pure. You might realize I don't exist. Then what the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> what am I going to do with myself all day? If you realize I don't exist. Oh, have you? I'm sorry to mean to interrupt, but have you watched any of the American Gods series? I've watched about half of the first season. Yeah, I, I keep meaning to get back. Yeah, it, it's good because it, there's a there's a. Um, uh, author Terry Pratchett, who is who is incredible, he died recently, but he has one particular book called Small Gods, and it's a lot like that book. It's like it almost because of the power of the human mind, whatever. I don't know, whatever, but it almost doesn't matter if gods are real or not. If people, if enough people believe in them and they believe in them passionately enough, those gods get get more power because they have more influence and that's what i like about the book and that's what i like about uh that tv series but it's the same thing here we need these people to believe passionately absolutely there's no hesitation there's no thinking there's no analyzing there's no debate there's no discussion there's no what ifs it's absolute childlike faith and that's how you keep these people in line and that's how you can get from them anything you want they'll be obedient you can obedient you can take their money they'll do whatever you say and that just reminds me of that it doesn't matter if it's real as long as they believe that's all we care about yeah that's how I like to keep my kids <laughs> Dumb and reliant on me. That's my parenting model. You don't need school. Just follow me. Follow me. <laughs> okay, time for some guitar. Doing this for Jason Palmer. He always likes it when I play right. guitar on the show. Just so he can feel superior and go, oh fuck, I can play better than him. <laughs> fuck. That's us. We're out. Uh, we'll be back next time with more Poggio, Book Hunters. Ciao. Ciao, Bella. Ooh, nah.